check. Uh, I am recording an interview with Stephen Lerner with the Kalmavavis uh, Center for uh, Labor and the Working Poor out of Georgetown University, Washington, D.C. It is July, I have to check here, July 22nd. Again, I record this from my home on the Clearwater River in Idaho. Stephen is gracious to join me via cell phone from his office in Washington, D.C. Stephen, again, is with uh, Bargaining for the Common Good as a team member of that. Uh, and uh, we see that type of thinking going on right now. So, Stephen, thank you for joining us. If you want to add anything to the intro, uh, and then maybe we get right into uh, bargaining for the common good. And also uh, your thoughts on the current crisis, the opportunities uh, that exist for uh, workers here in our country and worldwide. Well, first, thanks so much for having me uh, on the show and doing the interview. Like a lot of people, I'm in my office, which is my uh, kitchen. <laughs> Everything's shut down here pretty much. Um, the only thing I'd add is, you know, my uh, I, I've spent my entire life in the labor movement. You may, some of your listeners may know the Justice for Janitors campaign, but that's what um, I started and uh, helped run for many, many years. And so my roots are in, um, in organizing. I've organized construction workers, janitors, farm workers, and um, that's how I, I come to this from the perspective of 30 years as a labor and community organizer and trying to imagine what do we do at this moment to try to transform our country in a way that um, makes it better for workers and, and doesn't keep uh, having billionaires suck all the wealth out of the country. Uh, excellent. That's interesting. As a full disclosure, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Stephen, I, I carry a card with the laborers. And uh, for a while there, I carried dual cards. I was with the IBEW, the Electricians Union, and, and retired for them. So uh, 30 years yeah, out for, there, 30 years out yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. For a while, I was I was also the, in addition to the Justice for Janitors campaign, I was for a while the uh, national organizing director for the Building and Construction Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Uh, 20 years ago. So we have a lot in common, maybe. Yes, yes. And then it's funny how that works that way. Uh, uh, more more common than one uh, would first guess. So, Stephen, again, I know your time's valuable and I love how you're working out of your kitchen. Uh, that's the times we're in uh, for good or ill, but we're you're obviously keeping the movement going. So can you uh, give some uh, intro uh, as much as you will on bargaining for the common good? Because for my uh uh, efforts with this program uh, and other work, uh, we see it more and more going on, uh, especially in education and healthcare uh, labor strife. The idea behind bargaining for common good is pretty simple. In some ways, it goes back to the roots of the labor movement, which is that we shouldn't just bargain around wages and benefits that we need to think about organizing and bargaining as both about wages and benefits, but also how we make the economy and our communities work for everybody. And there's been this funny thing over the last 50 years, which is the employers and the labor board keep narrowing what they say people unions should bargain about. So they say, for example, teachers shouldn't be able to bargain around class size. And then they turn around and say, all teachers do is care about their wages. They don't care about education. And so there's this trap, I think, we've fallen into the labor movement, which is we think about our job narrowly. 
instead of thinking about unions and the working class as how we win transformative change that benefits everybody. So the simple idea behind bargaining for common good is that labor and community need to come together to expand what we bargain about so we think about the full lives of workers. So, for example, in Chicago, when the Chicago teachers went on strike, um, a couple months ago, last year, time is going so slowly now. Yes. You know, in addition to saying that they wanted to be paid and treated decently, they also said we need to deal with the housing crisis in America because how do you teach students who are homeless? In St. Paul, Minnesota, the teachers union won that the school district wouldn't do business with any bank that foreclosed during the school year. So we've tried to look at what are issues that connect labor in the community that really resonate with people that mean that the labor movement is fighting for workers in the community more broadly. And what we're finding is two interesting things is one, that there's a thirst for that, that people are hungry to imagine a labor movement that's fighting for everybody, not just for a narrow group. And second, it's how we go on offense instead of saying, don't cut our pay, don't come our cut our benefits, what we're saying is not only do we not want cuts, but we want to make things better for the entire community. So that's a, a short intro to what bargaining for common good is. Excellent. And and I'm, I'm, as a labor organizer of your background uh, and from my sense of things, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a, a, a workers in a union or otherwise uh, wanting to better their own uh, pay, their own benefits. But again, it's it's like you say, it's narrowed and it's it's kind of a it, it's uh, it put us on a defensive. And uh, the idea uh, if this doesn't get too far into weeds here, Stephen, the idea of uh, bettering all conditions, uh, this the bargaining for common good, the philosophy behind your your uh, your organization or your affiliation there uh, is very fundamental to uh both secular and non-secular teachings, uh, so that from humanities to religion, that uh, uh, work should benefit all, uh, and to the old idea of solidarity, which is our ultimate weapon. So, um, so from there, now we like you say we're in COVID. Uh, we're but let me go back. One yes, yes, go right ahead. What you know, one of the interesting things is some people say, well, if we're raising demands beyond our wages and benefits, are we sacrificing our ability to win better wages and benefits? And our experience is the opposite, that the employer responds when we add things beyond just protecting our wages and benefits is to offer us more money <laughs> as a way to try to get us to drop those demands. What I want to stress is we're not doing this just because we're nice people and isn't it better if the whole community benefits, we actually think it's how you build power. And an example is um, a couple months ago, the janitors in uh, Minneapolis went on strike in local 26 of the service employees union. And one of their demands was around creating new job categories of clean cleaning of, of green cleaning so that the buildings would um, pollute less because the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in cities are actually office buildings. And so the workers, one, did that demand because they care about the environment. Two, creating a higher category of work that they'd be paid more for because they were more skilled was good for workers. But the amazing thing that happened in the bargaining 
is that the employers would keep saying, well, you're not really serious about that. What if we give you more money as, right. as a way to stop that? And and really very similar to the building trades, what they wanted to do was set up a, a training fund that would increase worker skills, but increase worker skill to do something valuable to the community. So what happened is thousands of people who know nothing about unions all of a sudden rallied to the union's, union's cause because they said the union is fighting not just for themselves, but to make Minneapolis better for everybody. So I want to stress for everybody listening, we're not saying sacrifice your wages and benefits. We're saying if we don't do this, we won't be successful in raising our wages and benefits and protecting what we have. Excellent. Uh, so uh, so then you mentioned a, a, a more than a few uh, uh uh, positive examples, wins, if you will, Minneapolis, uh, uh, Los Angeles, through my interest, when you looked at uh, what they demanded, went out in the street and right. they had enormous outpouring of community support there. I, mean, exactly. I think if, I think they have 50,000 people plus in downtown L.A. in the rain. Uh, right. And while they were still manning their picket lines, so half or more of those people were probably not teachers. What was amazing about the United Teachers of Los Angeles strike is that students and parents referred to it as their strike. It wasn't a union strike. It was a community-wide strike about how we fix education, especially in uh, in poor communities and black and brown communities. And But the other thing that's really important about bargaining for common good is as the economies restructure and as a result of Wall Street's influence, even though we're bargaining with L.A. school board or the Chicago school board or you're bargaining, really, we're also bargaining with Wall Street. Because what happened in Chicago was the teachers getting ready to go on strike and they say, well, if um, Wall Street, the credit rating agencies say, well, if you pay them more money, we're going to cut your credit rating. And that means you'll have to pay more money. Uh, the city would have to pay more money to borrow money that in both Chicago and L.A., they actually did sit-ins um, at big real estate companies that were getting subsidies to build uh, luxury apartments from the city, something called tax increment financing. So what, they, what, what we did in both of these strikes is we looked up the money pyramid and said, who really has power and why isn't there money to pay teachers decently and provide a good education? And part of the reason is because we give billions of dollars in tax breaks to the richest people already. So in bargaining for common good, a key piece is understanding who really has power, who has money, and our direct employer, meaning in that case, the school board, what, the expression we use is broke on purpose, that the super right. rich have purposely created a tax structure. That means they get richer and the rest of us get poorer. And then even though they're the ones that make us broke, they then say, well, just be reasonable. There's no money. And then we say, right, there's no money because you stole it all. So bargaining for common good says we have to have a big view of the economy and what's going on so we can focus on who has the money. I'll give you a good example. In Connecticut, where we have a big bargaining for common good campaign started, um, the state budget is $19 billion. It's a small state. The state, the deficit COVID related going to the question you're asking because of, you know, the state's been shut down is four billion. They have a four billion shortfall. If you look at the 17 richest people in Connecticut, they're worth $17 billion, meaning 17 people are worth five times the state budget. And their wealth during the pandemic has increased $4 billion, just for little old Connecticut. So when people said the state's broke, it's broke because they're unwilling to tax the people 
who have been getting richer and richer at the very time there's a pandemic. And the first big demonstration we led there, we went to Greenwich, which is the richest part of Connecticut, and we titled it uh, Body Bags for Workers, Money Bags for Billionaires. And we dropped body bags at their houses to illustrate that workers are dying of COVID all over the state. And these guys are getting richer while claiming there's no money to fund essential services. That's interesting, uh, Stephen. Uh, and uh, I was asked uh, a month or so ago, participate in a workshop uh, a webinar, and it was what labor has done right, what labor has done wrong. And I said what labor was done right is we're still here. Uh, but I think the, the, the crunch for labor was uh, – it got caught flat-footed under what you're describing, what I would call neoliberalism, the the, the twin, the pistons of neoliberalism, in my judgment, uh, austerity and deregulation, uh, like you say, broke on purpose, or Thomas Frank's, uh, the wrecking crew, you know, underfund, mm-hmm. underregulate, and then look and say, look, government doesn't work. And exactly. we, we see the assault on, on civic institutions, and we're more so perhaps than on public education. Uh, and, and so what I'm seeing here, what I'm hearing from you and what led me uh, to pursue this interview is that uh, I see labor stepping up and, and getting on its feet and saying, you know, and responding to uh, this neoliberalism. And on a more uh, humanitarian sense is uh, uh, engaging people uh, 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 that uh, you're not alone. Uh, you're you're striking reference to the L.A. strike as being their strike. Um, so neoliberalism's uh, one of its worst effects, in my opinion, is this uh, is this atomization of society. And uh, and here you, uh, your group uh, is really answering that call. Uh, so uh, 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 it's uh, I'll just I'm rambling here. I'll go back to you, Stephen, your thoughts. Well, you're really getting to the core of what you're thinking about it goes to the moment we're in, which is, you know, historically, times of crisis and pandemic produce transformative change. And, you know, in the article that you referenced, um, which is in American Progress, what is not to be done, what I say is that the world's on a razor's edge. It's going to get much better or it's going to get much worse, but the middle is not going to hold. And it's an enormous opportunity to both present a vision of the kind of society that we want to live in and also to fight for that kind of transformative change that we need. But the key to that is we can't say the goal of the labor movement is to go back to the past, you know, sort of have rose colored glasses and say everything was great before. Because the economy's changed, the country's changed, employment's changed. So our strategy has to be based, as you're talking about, on how neoliberalism has reorganized the economy. And a key part of that is I hate this word because it doesn't really mean anything, but it's financialization, which is, and that's a key part of neoliberalism, which is, you know, in simple terms, it used to be that a company would make money because they would invest in something productive. There'd be a profit. Workers would get part, they would get part. But what's happened under neoliberalism is, and this is especially true with the, the private equity sector, is you can make money destroying companies. And we've structured the economy so giant companies like Blackstone and KKR, um, and the supermarket industry is a good example of it. It's been purchased by these giant private equity companies. Cerberus bought a bunch of ones. It's all different companies bought them. And their business model 
is to load it up with debt when they buy it, to extract all sorts of fees that they so that they get rich. And then when it goes bankrupt, they've structured the um, the deals so they're not they're not liable for the debts. So it's the most amazing sort of change in the economy that you can get richer bankrupting companies because of tax breaks, because of how you insulate. And then what happens is they don't care if they bankrupt the companies because really what they care about is the real value isn't the workers or the product or the service. It's the real estate underneath it. And so what neoliberalism and financialization have done is create a way, you know, the economists, I'm not an economist, I'm your friendly neighborhood union organizer, but the economists would say that they're rent seeking, which is that they're trying to find ways to increase their profits unendingly without actually doing something that's beneficial to society. And so when we think about what the labor movement needs to do, it's not sufficient just to think about where we work and who we negotiate with. We have to think about how neoliberalism has reorganized the economy. And what's so amazing about this COVID moment is I think Jeff Bezos got $13 billion richer yesterday, (laughs) is that throughout this period, billionaires, I think the total number is that billionaire wealth since the lockdown started has gone up $500 billion. It's like something is crazy in the economy when we have mass unemployment, we're about to go into mass evictions, Um, the whole country is in crisis, and these guys are sitting there getting richer and richer, and it speaks both to their greed, but also to why we have to transform the economy. And that's what bargaining for common good is about. It's saying we we have to have a say in how we're treated at work, we have to have a say in how our communities work. And we have to reorganize the economy so it benefits most people, you know, not a handful of billionaires. Excellent. Uh, and to me, I, I, uh, I look at, uh, from my personal perspective, life uh, experience, not only has neoliberalism uh, financialized the economy, but they financialize society. Uh, it, it, exactly. it's, it, it's, it's more than economic policy. It, it really is how you look upon humanity. And it's antithetical to, again, uh, not only the teaching of most major religions, uh, but also, you know, non-secular, non-religious uh, humanism is, again, we're just financial instruments. It may almost go, I, I think sometimes a Mario Savio going back to the 60s, you know, where, you know, we just, we've had enough. Uh, if we have to put our bodies on the, on the cogs and machine, it's, uh, uh, but again, we're on the razor's edge. Uh, uh uh, we're going to fall one way or the other. Uh, and in your article, you lay out what's not to be done. But you also, but then you, like you're talking now, uh, looking at the economic structure, who's behind us all and uh, going forward. Um, and can you get into uh, uh, you in your article, you speak about the upcoming uh, contract expirations, the CBAs uh, coming up and how they could be a great leverage. Yeah, so we've created an interactive map called Mapping for the Common Good that has uh, the contract expirations for, I think, we're up to 5 million workers, you know, basically over the next year and a half. And if people go on and bargaining for common bargaining for the common you can find the map. And there's a public facing map anybody can look at. But for activists, there's that a password you have to email us to get it that lets you search by geography, by sector, by company, et cetera, about what contracts are expiring in the next year and a half. So we have this very simple idea 
which is, you know, there's a lot of people who have never been involved in unions or been on strike who say, why doesn't everybody just have a general strike? And they don't necessarily understand expirations and all the things involved in unions. But what we can now do is we can look and say, what are all the contracts expiring near where I am? And what our idea is, even if we have different employers, can we create some common bargaining demands so that even though we're bargaining with different people, we're raising some of the other same issues. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I don't know, you know, one of the real problems in the economy is something called stock buybacks, which is that companies take their profits, they buy back their own stock, which then raises the price of the stock and then the CEO gets more money because he's rewarded based on that. But the problem with stock buybacks, as we saw at at General Motors when they closed the Lordstown plant recently, they said they needed more capital. The amount they saved by closing it was equivalent to how much they bought back their own stocks. So it's basically an accounting gimmick that they can use to increase their profits and their individual pay, but it drains the company of capital. And so one idea we could have is unions all over the country could put on the bargaining table that we want the companies agree not to do stock buybacks um, because it's bad for the economy, it's bad for the workers. We can put um, in higher education, we're developing bargaining demands around they have to tap the endowments and the rainy day funds before they do layoffs. So what the mapping allows people to do is also is to figure out how we synchronize our demands and actions. And at a place like Connecticut, a year and a half before the state collect, before the state contracts are up and a year and a half before the nursing home contracts are up. We're building a broad coalition of labor and community people, and we're combining the traditional mobilization to get ready for collective bargaining with a campaign to increase revenue for the state by focusing on the billionaires. And then we're going to spend, instead of just what a lot of unions historically do is, you know, three months before the contract, they get ready for the fight. We're a year and a half out building out a broad alignment of groups that will connect both how people deal with COVID, how the proper services are provided for communities. For example, in Connecticut, they've defunded most of the drug treatment programs during an opiate, opioid academic, um, epidemic. So what, what we want to do all over the country is have people say, aha, these are the other people who are going to be in bargaining. Let's see how we do this together. One way to imagine it, you talked about the L.A. strike. I talked about the Chicago teacher strike. Imagine if we had 50 of those strikes going on at the same time with similar demands, how that would both inspire and give people a way to see there is a better way forward. And that isn't, you know, neoliberalism. Excellent. Right. Again, uh, neoliberalism, it's finally coming into the forefront. It's becoming more of a of a, a a term people are becoming familiar with uh, thanks to work from people like you, Stephen. Uh, that's fascinating. I saw that map. Uh, and uh, will that be able to, uh, and so when you work on that, will that be able to then be used uh, for strikes so that if a person can uh, 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 click on one of those uh, drop downs and see if, if there's a, you know, a year and a half from now, there's actually a strike, a picket line. Uh, uh, something I've imagined is that uh, maybe a connect to uh, if you wanted to show up at a picket line, who to connect with, who's the uh, strike captain. Um, we, we, 
all that stuff, the way we've created it could be added in because we can also overlay to the public sector the budget cycles of the state and the legislative cycle. But we could add in all of that as people get ready. But the key thing is to think about it in advance. Yes. Wait. Like if we know that people are gearing up for a, uh, you know, for a strike, whether it's in the public or private sector, and then we see four or five other people are, then we can, we can do exactly what you're saying. We can start planning what's going to be the strike support on the ground. How are we mobilizing the community around that? How are we preparing for the inevitable, you know, police busting picket line? So this is exactly what this tool allows us to do is as a labor movement is to say, where are there opportunities to have big battles that are both about our existing contracts, but as importantly, about how we build a broader working class movement that's challenging the rich and powerful and saying it's insane that in the richest country in the world that people can't get a COVID test in a timely way. And that's been another exciting thing about bargaining for common good is how quickly, you know, if you look at um, the key bargaining for common good local unions and community groups were, you know, right when the pandemic hit, were arguing that, um, we're not just arguing and, and, and issuing demands around the treatment at work, but also all over the community. It was in Detroit where bus drivers were refusing to drive the buses unless there were masks provided. It, it's an opportunity for the labor movement to play its historic role as being the defenders of democracy and freedom and a more equitable society. And so that's the kind of thing we hope happens. And we hope everybody will go on the map and look at what's going on in their area and start planning now for the battles that are coming, especially because we all know what's coming, which is mass austerity. We're heading into those 28 million people that as the eviction bans and moratoriums drop that are threatened with eviction in this country. 28 million people who could be forced out of their apartments and homes. We simultaneously have massive budget cuts by, by state, which are going to lead to mass layoffs to the public sector. And so what one of the things we're thinking about, and I think I mentioned in this article, is how do we start getting ahead of what we know is coming? We need to form, um, we need to start thinking about how we're going to defend renters and homeowners who are going to be kicked out of their homes like in 2008. So we're forming eviction blockade committees all over the country that are going to physically stand between uh, the the marshals who do evictions. And, you know, this is, I don't know, if, you know, I think a lot of your listeners probably know the history of the depression. That's what people did. They, if they got evicted, then somebody moved their furniture back in. We need to think about what are the unemployed councils we're going to form of unemployed workers who are going to be campaigning um, both about their benefits, but also about the crazy system we have. So these are all the kinds of things, both the map let us think about, but also bargaining for common good helps us think about. It. And if people go on the website, I, there's 19 pages of creative bargaining demands that people have started using that go beyond traditional demands. And, you know, I can go through lots of them, but it's as I mentioned, it's everything from, um, you know, there's literally demands around how the police on on higher ed campuses treat neighborhood youth. What we're looking at is what is the full life of a community and worker and how can the union be seen as a vehicle to make those changes? Excellent. That's uh, uh, a lot there, but uh, it, that, you know, one thing that came to mind listening to you, Stephen. Again, I'm with uh, Stephen Lerner with uh, uh, Georgetown University. Uh, the, I'm going to mispronounce your center there. Uh, 
uh, Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown <laughs> University. Thank you, sir. Uh, but I, you know, one thing I did see a difference. Um, if you looked at the 30s, like you mentioned, you had uh, organizations, the Young Communist League in New York City and others that would show up at the evictions and move the the renters back in, move their furniture back in. Uh, you had all that, and you didn't see that in 2008. And while I will never downplay the the struggle, the uh, impact of the Depression in the 30s, uh, I do see a difference in that there was, I thought, I think there was a greater sense of solidarity than compared to uh, 08. And I, I believe you can lay that uh, at the feet of neoliberalism to a great degree, because again, we, we've atomized our society, uh, but now we're seeing uh, uh, this reaction to this, this restructuring, because uh, ultimately people, uh, we know we're not meant to be alone. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the atomization, that's exactly right, because what, what, what they're saying is that we are all commodities and our value, and, and, and that's how you can have this crazy argument that it's okay for a central worker to call, I mean, one of the great, one of the great things that sort of takes us out of the realm, I don't mean saying neoliberals rhetoric, but it's not how most folks talk. And another way to think about this is in this current moment, um, we think it's the society says it's okay for poultry and meatpacking workers to die to make sure that there's a smooth production of beef for the country, you know, where you have massive COVID infections. Instead of saying, well, if you slow down the production line and put screens in, there's all sorts of ways to both have food and have workers be safe. And I think what this moment crystallizes is that the really rich folks in the corporate sector here really. They say we're essential, but we're really expendable workers. They literally don't care if we die. Now, a lot of people are sort of shocked because it's so rampant now. But that's that's been their view for a long time in construction. You know, you don't need enough. You deunionize construction and then you have deaths go up massively of construction workers. It's actually interesting. You know, there's a lot of uh, I don't think people realize in many cases, how many workers die on the job, either directly or indirectly because of chemical exposure. So that is all part of a philosophy that says the most important thing is corporate profits, not human lives. And when when we talk about this moment offers opportunity, we know the horrors of it because we're all living it. But the opportunities, it brings into clarity the values of the other side, which is you know, and, and one of the things that just makes me bonkers is how in the world can the stock market be stable or going up under these circumstances? Now, one part is just what the government's doing, which is they're backstopping. <clears throat> excuse me. They're, they're putting trillions into buying corporate debt to stabilize the market. So that's a government choice. The same government that right now is debating whether to continue unemployment benefits is giving trillions to the corporate sector. But it also speaks to something else, the total divorce from reality of the finance system from people's regular lives. If you had said, if I had gotten on your show two years ago and said, we're going to have a mass pandemic, 140,000 people are going to die. We're having mass employment. We're having all of this and the stock market will go up. People would have said, what are you, some kind of crazy radical? But that's what's happened. I mean, it's extraordinary that the stock market is stable or going up at a time that the country is in such tragic shape. Correct. And again, uh, 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 
people might think it's in the weeds. Uh, we talk about neoliberalism. Uh, it, it's some type of um, economic uh, theory or strategy or school. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's so pervasive. And again, it, it's so counter to uh, uh, both the beliefs people truly hold and uh, and with uh, on the other side, what the lip service is paid. But again, we we financialize society. We financialize uh, uh, humanity, if you will. Each of us, again, are, uh, you know, we're we're just uh, uh, going back to the meat packers. That that uh, yes, food production is essential, but uh, it's uh, how you do it. Uh, if you focus on the humanity focus on the lives or just focus on uh, uh, the money. Stephen, uh, I know your time's valuable. Uh, we've gone a little over it, uh, but I'll leave the closing to you. Anything you want to add, uh, throw out there? Yeah, I, I would just end by saying the moment we're in, and I don't mean to be melodramatic or anything, really may decide the state of this country and the world. And it's all, it must be all of our calling to have a big vision, to develop the strategies, to get in the streets, and to do what's necessary to make sure that if we're on a razor's edge, and if you look at what's happening in Portland with, you know, um, the, these government goons attacking people, everybody in labor needs to understand that once you normalize the idea that the government can send in federal agents who are unidentified to snatch people off the street Every trade unionist, whether they consider themselves a conservative, Republican, a Democrat, a radical, needs to look at what's happening and imagine the next time they go on strike and those same kind of goons are set in. You know, we've been through that before. So I just leave folks with, let's seize this moment. Let's do something wonderful together to create the kind of world that we want to live in, that we want our kids to live in, and that will survive for generations ahead. Excellent. I think uh, re re resistance uh, resistance will define our society, our culture, um, uh, uh, to fight us to win. Stephen Lerner, thank you so much for your time. Yep. I'm going to stop our recording, but if you hold on for a moment.